It says in verse 1, Inasmuch as many have taken in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and ministers of the word delivered them to us, it seemed good to me also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of those things in which you were instructed. So Luke, the author of Luke and the author of Acts, is writing to Theophilus. Luke was probably a slave, and he was probably trained by Theophilus, and I I should put it this way, his master Theophilus. This is the best frame of mind, and I'm going to kind of breeze over some of these things. There are different opinions, but I'm going to try to give you the, the straightest solid road of understanding here. Um, I understand that there are you know, you know, differences, like I said, of opinions and some deviations, but they're not critical. So Luke, uh, being a slave, his master being Theophilus, paid for his training as a physician. That was very common in the day. Physicians were owned by a master. It isn't the highly lucrative thing that it is today. It was a very humble thing in that day. Those masters would invest in a person who was uh, a very good student, who was given to uh, healing and helping people, had certain knowledges already. They would pour money and send them to college, and uh, they would learn and understand and treat and care for people. Luke is a physician. Theophilus seems to have been his master. The term Theophilus means lover of God. So um, there's a couple other interpretations, but they surround the idea of lover of God or loved of God. But lover of God is a little better. So it's possible that he's writing it just generally to all of us, those that love God. And, uh, you know, in that idea, uh, there's a lot of good points to take. But it seems more fitting, given other portions of language, to think that Theophilus is a literal man, and including the fact that he refers to him as the most excellent Theophilus, which uh, Paul uses that term in referring to the most excellent Felix when they're in court. It is a term of uh, political position. So uh, the idea seems to be that Theophilus was a man of authority and power, money, who had paid for him to become a physician. And these people would then <clears throat> hire their servant out. So it was it was lucrative, but to the master. So the physician that they had trained would care for the health of his household and his other servants and workers. And then he would hire him out to go work at other families and other settings and benefit himself in the process. As you read through, it seems what happened is that... Theophilus, being a devout believer, had given Paul Luke so that Luke could travel with him and care for his infirmities, that his physical illnesses. And there's 
some interesting things to look at, how in the book of Acts, Paul's been trying to get into Asia, and he says the Spirit prohibited him, and we later learn that he was very sick during that time that he describes as the Spirit prohibiting him, and in that process he has a vision, and there's a man beckoning to him, saying, come over here to Mesopotamia and minister with us. They go do that, and when he arrives in Mesopotamia, Luke's the author of the book of Acts, all of the pronouns change from they to we. So it's possible that Luke is the man of the vision that was praying to the Lord and asking for help and asking for assistance, and the Holy Spirit sent that message to Paul. So there's this huge history with Luke, and here he wants to set in order the things that were. This is the ministry of Jesus that he's going to concentrate on. What we're going to read this evening pertains to the birth of Jesus Christ. Now, he's already told us that where his information comes from are the first-hand witnesses. So he himself is not a first-hand witness to any of these events. He's interviewing as people describe certain things that transpired, and he's taking notes of names. He's asking those individuals, do we know where these people live now? And then he would travel, meet them, interview them, and compile this understanding. So what we have here is first-hand narrative compiled from interviews. Those who were witness, those who experienced these things firsthand. Luke is the most extensive by far in the detailed coverage. There are others that have their own approach, but you know how it is. <clears throat> You're at any given event and you have an experience. If there are 50 people there, there are going to be 100 opinions about what happened everybody's going to have at least one or two different views of how things transpired. So when you read Matthew and Mark and then John, they're giving you their particular insights to those circumstances and their variations there. Luke is trying to get everyone's experience involved in his narrative here. So now he wants to present to this man, Theophilus, who has become a believer, the most accurate relaying of the account that he can. Verse 5. There was, in the days of Herod, the king of Judah, a certain priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah. His wife was of the daughters of Aaron. His name, or excuse me, her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, <clears throat> walking in all the commandments and ordinances of the Lord, blameless. That's, that's a remarkable statement. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well advanced in years. Um, sometimes when we read and you get these historic markers, you know, during the days of Herod, king of Judah, <clears throat> we can kind of feel like, I'm never going to remember those details. It's significant to understand that this is a specific moment in history. 
you know, we hear certain ancient stories and writings and they're written in generic fashion because they're myth and they're legend. They're not real. They're not placed in history anywhere. This has a very specific location in history. We're able to track with great detail even the serving of the priests within the temple. So this this specific instance can be verified. It's something that the Lord wants us to understand. This isn't a story, and we say that, don't we? And I, I know I'm try, still trying to edit my own tongue. We'll say, you know, let's read the kids a Bible story. You know, if we sat down to read the kids, you know, some history book of World War II. We wouldn't say, hey, kids, want to hear a story about World War II? You're you're telling them of actual events that took place. This is not a story. It is a narrative, and I guess we can call it so, but it's not fiction. This took place in a specific moment of time. She's barren, has no child. They're righteous people, obedient to the Lord. Within the culture... There are people who spread rumors and gossips all the time about her. You guarantee it. Because while the scripture records that they were blameless and they walked with the Lord, her being barren was thought to be a curse from God. So even though everyone could see, look at the way that they walk and behave and live, there was the mindset amongst a better part of the culture of they must be hypocrites. There's got to be something hidden there. Look at the difficulty that they're dealing with. She has no children. God has not blessed her. People do this all the time. They see someone in struggle. They automatically assume that is coming upon them because they're bad. If you take the book of Job, the earmark of trial and testing, the exact same, the exact opposite is what's true there, right? Job is experiencing his difficulties because he is righteous and because he walks with the Lord. That's why he's going through those difficulties. You don't want to assume the wrong thing. Well advanced in years. It has a very specific description in the Greek language of being bent over at the waist. They're hunched straight over with years. They're, They're both so ancient. That everywhere they go, people are like, you know, helping them and like opening doors and like, let me get that for you, sir. You know, they're that advanced in their age. I don't know if you've experienced this. You just, you know, you're walking into a supermarket and here comes that elderly woman. You feel like just rushing over and like caring for her and helping her. There's a gal near us that I've picked up, James has picked up. You see her walking down over Blue Hill. And then back up over Blue Hill, she walks over seven miles every day. That woman, on no exaggeration, has to be close to 90 years old. She takes her little, you know, two-wheeled wagon, goes down, gets her groceries, walks back up. She does it purposely to keep herself healthy. But she also appreciates a ride every now and then. When you're well advanced in years, people take note, you know, and want to help. So it was that while he was serving as priest before God, in the order of his division, they went through 
uh, the Levites in order. They would go through the tribes, they would go through the families, each family and each person taking their turns, and we're going to see when it fell to a specific family that it's their time to serve in the priesthood at the temple, then they would draw lots for the duties. And just start with the top duties. You know, who's going to be taking care of, you know, whatever, the, uh, you know, the brass pans and the, the ladles and all the utensils, and they draw straws and it would fall on this person. And who's going to be burning incense? And that's where we are uh, with this situation. It, the, the lot falls upon him. So according to the custom of the priesthood, his lot fell to burn incense when he went into the temple of the Lord. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. So, <clears throat> you know, they gather to uh, the temple and the incense is taken in and it's put upon the altar. And this incense that is burned, you know, you don't want to think about like, you know, your one little cone of, you know, pine scented incense burning in the corner to just give the house a fragrance. This is fine beaten uh, incense, all in these fine, it's not like powder, but flakes. And the the altar is just brazen hot with all these cherry red coals, and they go in and dump the incense on there, and it just erupts into this smoke that fills the room, pours out of the you know temple, and the people can see the smoke rising even and recognize it's the hour of prayer, that this is when we're to turn our hearts to the Lord. When you look forward into the book of Revelation, and there is the altar and the incense and the smoke that ascends, it says that the smoke is the prayers of the saints ascending to God. In heaven, the altar there, the Lord is conscious of that. There's something about fragrance that I always want to touch on at this moment. You know, that uh, there are certain fragrances that automatically make your mind uh, think of good things. You know, this is a great time of year for odor and fragrance. You know, candles, Christmas, you got pumpkin pie and fresh baked bread and, you know, roasting turkey and just there's fragrance that's especially good. And you can identify each one. You know, I always like to walk in the house when I'm not expecting that sort of thing. And it hits you and you're like, oh, somebody's making bread. It's just a wonderful thing to walk. The Lord can identify who's praying. The, the general sense of prayer and the individual fragrance. He understands our presence before him in prayer. The people all gather. The incense is going to be offered. It's the hour of prayer outside the temple the angel of the lord appeared dim standing on the right side of the altar of incense when zacharias saw him he was troubled and fear fell upon him now, this guy's so old he you know when we see your life flash before your eyes he's in a frail state it's quite possible that uh, he could have dropped dead right there He's filled with fear. He's experienced. The angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your prayer is heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. Now, look. 
she's been barren their entire marriage. We have the basic understanding that they were married young. They're well up to 80 plus years, and now suddenly she's going to be pregnant. I don't know how about you, but I've been, if I've been praying for 60 years and somebody comes up and says, your prayer has been answered, I'm going to be thinking, which one? And if, if you were praying in your 20s, Lord, please bless my wife with a child. And all the years have transpired. And now you're well advanced in years. And maybe you've hung out with your brother who had kids. And, you know, you've tried to wrangle your nephews. And now you're, you know, in your 80s and you're being told, good news, you're going to have a child. It's another thing to think about. Not sure if your timing is exactly right on all of this, but here, here he is experiencing you're going to have a son and name him John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for it will be great in the sight of the Lord, and shall drink neither wine nor strong drink. He will also be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And we're going to see the Greek language means even in his mother's womb. And there's a doctrinal challenge for you all to consider. John the Baptist was filled with the Holy Spirit in his mother's womb. So, you know, predestination, something to consider. What the scripture does teach. Not going to have any wine or strong drink. This is the Nazarite vow that's being described. And this is going to be John's state of existence for his whole life, not a period of time. The Nazarite vow could be taken for a short period of time. It's going to be John's whole state of existence for his life. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God he will also go before him in spirit and in power of Elijah to turn the heart hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. This is, <coughs> you know, spoken of uh, by the prophets and Malachi was foretelling the coming of John and the spirit of Elijah. This revival that's being spoken of is characteristically what happens when the Holy Spirit comes upon people. Families are restored. Fathers' hearts are returned to their children. Rebellious children have their hearts restored to their father. Repentance makes for this beautiful restoration of a culture. When the Holy Spirit is ministering, it's not something I can do. It's not something you can do, right? We'd all like to say, yeah, like, let's go get involved in revival, and we'll revive our community. I, I can't do that. You can't. No one can do that. We can fall on our face and ask God to do it. And in that effect, we are doing it. And I, I think it's pretty obvious. Our whole world needs revival. Our culture needs revival. We need to be men and women of continuous and constant prayer that the Lord would send his spirit upon the people in this way. 
Zacharias said to the angel, now I'm going to throw some tone in here. You've studied through this with me before. How shall I know this? It's literally a, a, uh, a remark of doubt. How in the world could that happen? Is what he's saying to the angel. For I am an old man. My wife is well advanced in years. But she's bent over with age. This is ridiculous to think that she would be able to have a child. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel, who stands in the presence of God and was sent to speak to you and bring you these glad tidings. <clears throat> Literally, Gabriel rips out his credentials and shoves them right in Zacharias's face. I, I don't know about you. If you suddenly find yourself standing in the presence of an angel, my best advice is don't speak harshly in doubt to the angel who's delivering the message. It just seems like a foolish endeavor that you would, you know, talk back. There are certain people that you probably should never talk back to. You know what I'm saying? Your mom probably is one. There's probably a long list of others in your life that you should never talk back to. You just, you're gonna, you know, you might even think you're brave and somehow doing, you know, a cool thing. You're gonna regret it. Talking back to an angel who just came from the presence of the Lord, not advisable. Not advisable. He's going to regret this <laughs> at least for the next nine months. And uh, perhaps he's even regretting it today as we sit here and have to read about it. So we'll see once we're in the presence of the Lord. I'm Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. I was sent to speak to you these glad tidings. But behold, you will be mute and not able to speak until the day these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their own time. You're going to shut your mouth, and you're not going to be able to speak. The people waited for Zacharias and marveled that he lingered so long in the temple. They're probably thinking he had a heart attack. The old guy went in there to perform his priestly duties and dropped dead. They're probably putting together the search party right now. When he came out, <clears throat> he could not speak to them. And they perceived they had seen a vision in the temple. For he beckoned to them and remained speechless. He's making all these signs. It's a game of charades. So it was, as soon as the days of his service were completed, that he prepared, uh, excuse me, he departed <coughs> to his own house. Now, after those days his wife Elizabeth conceived and she hid herself five months saying thus the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked on me he took away my reproach among the people and there you hear her saying that the people had spoken ill of her that she was looked down upon uh, throughout her life and now that's been taken away now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent by God to the city of Galilee named Nazareth. The sixth month is her sixth month. So she's pregnant. She's concealed it for five months. And when she reaches her sixth month, then the angel Gabriel is sent to Nazareth to a virgin betrothed 
to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, those three levels of marriage that take place in this culture, there is first the <coughs> excuse me, um, committal or the promise where families would make the arrangements for people to be married. And that was the engagement. Okay, We think of engagement where the commitment is made and the ring is exchanged, and that's a binding sort of agreement. The engagement in their day was usually arranged marriage between parents, and usually when they were quite young, they would make these commitments. The betrothal was when they reached a point of maturity that they agreed, yes, we're going to be married. We agree with the engagement of our parents. We don't have any desire to break it. Uh, let's sign the agreement ourselves. So they would have a legal ceremony where they stood in front of the elders of their community and they would sign a document saying they were committed to being married. And then the marriage would come later, sometime later, usually around a year, but it could be a very short period of time later, there would be a marriage ceremony and they would usually have a seven-day party and there was a whole bunch of very complex uh, ceremonies involved in all of that. But she's at the betrothal stage. So she's signed the document. They're committed to one another. But they haven't had any intimacy and they haven't had any marriage ceremony yet. It says, having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. I think that, you know, I've made the point many times. I think that Mary is venerated too highly by the Roman Catholic institution and others. And I, I think that she is demeaned too low by the Protestant side of Christianity. There is so much about this young woman that is worthy of study and admiration. A remarkable person. You're going to hear her shortly begin to quote the scripture as she quotes from you know, many, many passages, many, many verses that just pour out of her heart. This is a woman who is in pursuit of the Lord with her life. It's, it's a part of the reason that the Lord has chosen her. Her heart's already given over to him and given over to his will. A remarkable thing for a very young girl to be this committed and dedicated to the Lord. Having come in, the angel said to her, Rejoice, highly favored one. The Lord is with you. Blessed are you amongst women. When she saw him, she was troubled at this saying and considered what manner of greeting this was. Then the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bring forth a son, and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great, and will be called the Son of the Most High, or the Highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. Now, you know some of these points that are made here, people want to argue with you know the throne of David and you know now there's a new political scheme 
in place in Israel? And how can you say Jesus is an eternal king? And, you know, where is it that he's ruling from? Jesus himself answered the questions saying, my kingdom is not of this earth. You know, once he stepped into human history, he took all of those authorities spiritually unto himself. He does sit on the throne right now. All of the kingdoms of the earth are currently under his command. No one gets to move outside Jesus' bidding. Right? He said to Pilate there in those moments before crucifixion, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given to you. God doesn't allow these things to take place outside of his control. All authority is, in fact, under Jesus Christ's authority. It says in verse 34, Then Mary said to the angel, How can this be, since I do not know a man? Different form of question than Zacharias. Zacharias says that with all the doubt in the world, and it's even confirmed in the passage, he doesn't believe it's going to happen because he doesn't believe it's possible. Mary is simply saying, you're going to have to explain some things to me. I have never been with a man, so it's not possible for me to be pregnant. You're telling me I'm going to have a child uh, there's going to have to be some changes take place if I'm going to have a child. Because I don't know a man. The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you. The power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore also, the Holy One who is to be born will be called the Son of God. Now, there is this very distorted view that somehow God was physically intimate with Mary. I just want to say that is blasphemous and sacrilegious to say that or describe that. One of the gals that was attending church here some time ago, has since moved away, was working in genetic research, and she had a long conversation with me about how contained inside the woman's genetics is, in fact, all of the information necessary to make a human being. You don't have to take and derive from a man and from a woman what is necessary in order to derive a child genetically. Okay, not not saying physically, but genetically. And interestingly enough, that within the man there is not. So you know. We're incomplete, and you guys are complete. So there's a nice little thought there in the process. We're not all there, John. It's as simple as that. These women are. So here he's saying you're going to be the son of, she's going to be the son of God. I'm going to cause you to be pregnant. It's as simple as that. I know your body's chemistry. I know the genetics. I'm just going to make a child, and you're going to have a child. It's as simple as that. Now, indeed, Elizabeth, your relative, has also conceived a son in her old age. And this is now the sixth month of her who was called barren. And there's the confirmation that the six months we were talking about previously are Elizabeth's six months. For with God, nothing will be impossible. Boy, that's a refrigerator verse, huh? For with God, nothing will be impossible. Right? 
we we tend to right think that the small it's it's just in, interesting to me we tend to think the small things are impossible don't we we get to the crisis and we're like oh I, it's this is going to require god when we get to the headache we're like well i've got time now we move quickly off to the human solution and i just throw that out there as you know a thing because i think i you know in the past week i've taken about 14 pounds of Tylenol, but anyway, I mean, just this idea, you know, with God, all things are possible. I think, you know, if we, you know, search our hearts and search the scripture and worship the Lord and pray and pray more and more all the time, what we're going to see is all the areas where we're not reliant upon him, where we should be continuously looking to him, constantly Asking his presence, asking his favor, his guidance, his insight. The Lord is so good, so faithful to be in all of our circumstances, including those absolutely impossible things. Then Mary said, Behold, the maidservant of the Lord, let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from here. I know that we've talked about this message in different ways before, but I just want to remind us. This young woman is looking at <laughs> the complete upheaval of her life. She's looking at, she's not married, and she's about to announce to the public that she's pregnant with a child. And when they say to her, who made you pregnant? Because we need to take you to the center of the city and stone you and him to death. A very serious thing to say, let it be to me as you have said. Her whole community is going to shun her, even if she's not stoned to death, which they had largely departed from doing by this time. No one's going to have anything to do with her for the remainder of her life. There are going to be whispers and stories and catcalls and all kinds of insults hurled at her. And it does go on. The scripture records how they berated Jesus about who is your father anyway, implying you're illegitimate and we know it. And they make those statements outright. Like just to bear this word, when she says to this angel and effectively to the Lord, <clears throat> Let it be to me as you have said. <clears throat> to me, highly favored one, honored amongst women, do we as men and women have the faith to hear God say, I have something in my will for you. That's going to be very challenging. And for us to just simply respond, may it be to me as you have said. Not to say, now, what are the conditions? I mean, what what is the one-year outlook on this whole idea that you presented? You know, do we have a three-year plan? Is, is there a five-year or a ten-year outlook on what you're proposing to me? What's the retirement package like? What should my what should I consider my starting pay to be? 
Mary doesn't do any of that. Mary is looking right at what she knows with a certainty is going to be tremendous hardship. And she says, I'll take that. Yeah, why? Because you're a messenger of God. I am a woman who is obedient to God. You've shown up as a messenger of God and said, this is my anointed call in life. I'll embrace it. So many people step back and do the calculations based upon their own human interests and their desires. Not this young woman. She says, I will take that. Mary, behold, I am your maidservant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. Mary arose in those days and went into the hill country with haste in the city of Judah and entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And it happened when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, that the babe leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and seemingly John, as it was described. Then she spoke out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. But why is this granted to me, that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For indeed, as soon as the voice of your greeting sounded in my ears, the babe leaped in my womb for joy. Blessed is she who believed, for there will be a fulfillment of those things which were told her from the Lord. Quite a remarkable prophecy for Elizabeth to have this level of, of insight. No, I, I don't know if you've had the positive experience that was just described there, but it's an incredibly joyful thing. I've had a few occasions in my life where upon meeting someone, there was a joyful leaping of my heart in recognition of the Lord has bound me together with this person. You know, many of you know Ruben Kagami from Kenya, Africa. And uh, blind brother, short little black man who is an apologist for our faith in Kenya. And he just goes from university to university presenting the gospel to the students and the professors and sharing the love of Christ with the world, defending the gospel and the truth of God's word. I, I saw Reuben for the first time and immediately was filled with a joy. And then with every passing conversation, was just bound together with him that way. There have been a few other you know, things. You know, other relationships, like all of you have had that over time, and that's grown. But there are those few where upon meeting people, there's just something that goes off. And then the Lord confirms it over time that this is a relationship of the Holy Spirit. It's a very blessed thing when we have that experience. And then the prophecy that follows out of her mouth. So remarkable what she understands. And Mary hasn't revealed to her the conversation or any of the things that have transpired. She suddenly has this burst of knowledge that comes out of her mouth as she communicates with Mary. Now, in verse 46, 
if you haven't made note of it in your Bible, you can hear Mark, perhaps, and write the Magnificat. This is Mary's blessed praise of God. And I've done it before, and then I looked back at it and did the research again, and my calculations were wrong because there were even more scriptural references in here than I had perceived on my first counts. So you can do your own homework, and as you read through this, realize this young woman knows the Word of God. It's embedded in her heart, in her mind. You know, you put her under pressure, what comes out? The Word of God. It's her person. It's who she is. Verse 46, Mary said, My soul magnifies, and there is the term, the Magnificat, that she magnifies the Lord. And my spirit has rejoiced in God my Savior. Now, two questions, <laughs> and I'll just ask myself. Does my person magnify God or diminish God? I think at times it's diminished God. I pray at times he would clean the lens, blow out the dust, magnify himself. Mary makes the confession, my soul magnifies God. And to this day, we're sitting here with the brilliant illumination of Jesus Christ streaming out of her life on these pages to our hearts and minds. Her soul magnified God and rejoiced in God my Savior, for he has regarded the lowly state of his maidservant. For behold, henceforth all generations will call me blessed. And they do. They do. I, I like the fact that we've kind of gotten some of over a little bit of the godlessness in our culture and people are returning in in a lot of places to just saying Merry Christmas. You know, this whole thing of happy holidays. You know, okay, if you're truly covering from Thanksgiving to New Year, fine. You know, Christmas and New Year, whatever. I'm not going to get too, you know, wound up about it, but it's Christmas. We're celebrating the birth of Christ. Even if you're not celebrating, guess what? It's still Christmas. You know, we, we are celebrating Jesus Christ's birth. This woman submitting herself to God gives us this celebration that we're about to embark upon. This thing that has gone from generations, we are being blessed by it in just a few days. For he who is mighty, has done great things for me. And holy is his name. Both things. One, his name is holy. And two, his name is holy. Who is God? He is holy. He is high above everything else, set apart, pure. I, I am still bothered by so many who claim to be Christians who act like all the other false religions of the world are as legitimate as Christianity. Are you a Christian or not? God alone, Jesus Christ, the God 
of the Bible is the one true living God. He alone is holy. There is no other. The holiness that we experience is an extension of his holiness to us. Our holiness is Jesus Christ's holiness imparted to us, and all that does for us personally is make us separated unto God. It's not like we're better than the world we're walking around in. God alone is better than the world we're walking around in. And he's saved us by that holiness. And his mercy is on those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his army, has scattered the proud in the imagination of their heart. He has put down the mighty and their thrones, and exalted the lowly, and has filled the hungry with good things. The rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. This woman is reaching all the way back to Adam and Eve. In her knowledge, in her confession, in her speech, her understanding goes back to Eve fell into sin, brought the curse upon herself and the human race. God, in pronouncing curse, pronounces the blessing upon her that there will be this hostility between your seed, singular, capital S, and the seed of Satan or the seed of the world. There's going to be this hatred, contention, and war, and that someday he, capital H, the seed being referred to, will crush the head of that serpent who will bruise his heel. Mary is understanding this is the fulfillment of the prophecy that began with Eve in creation. All that Israel has hoped for, for up through Abraham to me to this day, is being fulfilled in this moment in my relationship with the Lord. Remarkable experience that she's having. Mary remained with her, Elizabeth, about three months and returned to her house. The uh, Greek swaps it up uh, a little bit where it shouldn't. It seems to imply in the original language that she waited for the birth that's about to be described um, in Elizabeth and then departed, that she was there through the delivery of this child. There's some debate about that, but um, that seems to be the implication. So she's there and returned home. Now Elizabeth's full time came for her to, her to be delivered, and she brought forth a son. When her neighbors and relatives heard how the Lord had shown great mercy to her. They rejoiced with her. So it was on the eighth day that they came to circumcise the child and would have called him by the name of his father, Zacharias. That was the custom that they would name the child on the eighth day, even if the family had already decided the official transcript would take place at the eighth day of the circumcision, and everybody's thinking that he's going to be named Zacharias. His mother answered and said, No, 
he shall be called John. But they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who is called by this name. So they made signs to his father what he would have called, have him called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, saying his name is John. So they marveled. I like the fact that he puts it in the past tense. You know, his name already is John. You know, how long has his name been John? Since birth, you guys had a conversation about it? No, since the angel said so. The angel said his name would be John, so we're naming him John. Why? Because I'd like to talk again at some point. You know, I talked back and resisted an angel once, and here I sit with my box of crayons and my coloring pad. You know, we're doing charades. It's kind of entertaining, but I'd like to go back to speaking. The boy's name is John. So, <coughs> excuse me. Uh, I lost my place there. His name is John. So they all marveled. 64, immediately his mouth was opened, his tongue loosed, and he spoke, praising God. Then fear came on all who dwelt around them. All these sayings were discussed throughout all the hill country of Judea. And all those who heard them kept them in their hearts, saying, What kind of child will this be? The hand of the Lord was with him. Now his father Zacharias was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. Now I love that. The redemption is still ahead of them. And this man is saying, we're already redeemed. Why? Because we have John, who's the precursor to the Savior, and the Savior is coming. Therefore, God has already redeemed us. We are presently redeemed. I like that type of speech of faith. <clears throat> when we can live in the knowledge of God's word and speak about it. I'm not talking about positive confession. I'm talking about when we know the way we should behave, when we know how we should raise our children, when we know to speak of the future in such a way that it has the surety of God's word attached to it. It's a very powerful thing to train our hearts and minds to do. You know, here he's visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of the holy prophets, who have been since the world began. Um, just a minor note there for anybody who's wondering about the gap theory. If you don't know what the gap theory is, just ignore what I'm saying. If you're thinking about the gap theory, right, we are told that Abel was the first prophet. Okay, so for those that say God started creation and then it got interrupted and then it got restarted and that's when Adam and Eve were created. God has said that the prophets were at the beginning of creation. Jesus Christ said that Abel was the first prophet. So that makes Abel right in the beginning. There's no gap. So that's just one of my pet peeves and I'll move on. Then... We should be saved from our enemies. That, that we should be saved from our enemies. And from the hand of all who hate us. To perform the mercy promised 
to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath which he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all the days of our life. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the highest, for you will go before the face of the Lord to prepare his way, to give knowledge of salvation to his people by the remission of their sins through the tender mercies of our God, which with which the day spring from on high has visited us to give light to those who sit in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. So the child grew and became strong in the spirit and was in the desert till the day of his manifestation to Israel. Just a final note. The <coughs> promise coming of John, the messenger before Jesus, to tell the people, make the way straight, make it easy for the king to come. That was something that was done in Rome throughout their empire when the emperor or their rulers were going to travel to a certain region, especially to live, the community would be required to invest the labor and the money in order to build flat, smooth roads according to the Romans' requirements in order for the king to travel in. If the community has been traveling down the same old goat path and across the creek, for, you know, millennia. When the Roman emperor is coming, the goat path has to leave. You're going to build a huge paved, stone paved road right through here so that when the king comes, he doesn't have to go down and up and up and down and through and over and around. It's just one smooth passage to his throne, to the place where he's going to rule and he's going to govern. And in each of those areas, that was commonly referred to as the king's road. That's what John is saying. Make straight the way for the king. It's the same call. It's the same mandate. Get everything out of the way. Let the king come. The precursor. We're sitting here tonight and the call is the same. As we prepare to celebrate and worship Jesus Christ this coming week. And I pray, oh, I pray, you're worshiping Jesus, not those presents. Take the time to stop the kids. This is my recommendation, before the presents get open. And read the birth of Jesus Christ. Pray, thank the Lord for the blessing, then let them go berserk, you know, whatever, just instill in them that Jesus Christ comes first, that worship is before anything else. Thanksgiving is before anything else. You could take David Crowder's advice, wrap up a bunch of empty boxes, you know, when they're bad, just throw one of those into the fire and let it burn, you know, teach him a lesson. You thought of David Crowder as that soft, sung, quiet, 
I don't know if he really does it. He insists that he really does it to teach them. I don't know. Might be child abuse in some people's book, but whatever. Kind of like it. I haven't ever done it, but kind of like it. Get the materialism out of the way. Get Jesus in their face. Make sure we do. We read. We pray throughout the day. We we bring our hearts before the Lord. Got to be that we worship Jesus Christ in this process. You know, this statement at the end, speaking of John, the child grew and became strong in the spirit, was in the desert until the day of his manifestation. As far as we understand from church history, what transpired was while John was very young, because his parents were very old, they passed away. John was left as an orphan. And he had had instilled in him enough by those parents in that very short window, you're the prophet of God. And you're going to prepare the way for the coming king. He goes into the desert and there's some discussion about who he lived with. Maybe the Essenes. We don't know that. But he comes out of the wilderness looking like the Essenes behaving like the Essenes, with the diet of the Essenes, and he's got a similar message, which is, get right with God. That is profoundly needed in our culture. And man, are people screaming right now in the church about tone the message down. Make the message nicer. Make the message cooler. Make the message more cappuccino, something. They're freaking out about that direct message. The king is coming. As we sit here tonight, the king is coming. And the call is the same. And if we be filled with the Holy Spirit, as John the Baptist was, then our call is the same. Make straight the way for the king. Amen? Let's stand and we'll pray. <coughs> Father God, we are so grateful for your great love. Oh, your great love. The way that you just overlooked all of my junk. I can't even believe it. Each one of us washed clean in your blood. How amazing. How gracious. How merciful. Thank you for the gift of your son. We do pray that you would prepare our hearts for the celebration of his birth. That we would each have our hearts red, our knees bowed before your throne, ready for obedience. Accomplish your work and your will in us and through us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.